Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. The heroes of Star Trek live in a humanist paradise, where the freedom from want has had a transformative effect on human morality. There's no need to boost your neighbor's sweet shuttlecraft if you can just order one for yourself, for free, from the shuttle depot. Consequently, humanity's attitude towards the spiritual has evolved, not only due to a greater scientific understanding of the universe, but because the responsibility to be kind to your fellow being is no longer shackled to the imperative of ancient debated scripture. As Cisco said, it's easy to be a saint in paradise, or even Eden, but every Eden has a serpent, and as long as we have stories, we'll need bad boys and girls to make them more exciting. Bad boys, what are you going to do when we talk about you? Last week, John Jackson Miller and I discussed the TNG episode Devil's Do, and I thought we'd keep it going this week, looking at some of the devilish villains that add spark to our favorite stories, both in Trek and media at large. Also on today's show, we've still got a few Minox chewing on the power cables of the ship, so I'll bring you a review of the new Star Wars film, Solo, a Star Wars story, the story of Solo in the Wars of Stars from Solo, a story about that. And then, no more Star Wars. What the heck? What the heck? This is Trek. But just a little wars. Just a little. Once you pop, you know. Plus, we have a little news from the world of Trek, an update on the CBS Viacom merger maelstrom, and social media comment of the week. Does that tempt you? Hmm? Then take a bite, and let's get underway. Beginning with Trek news this week, Sherry Redstone is suing CBS and CBS CEO Les Moonves. She filed her suit on Tuesday, and she's seeking to block CBS, the board of CBS, from diluting her stock share. We talked about this, or I talked about this, on a previous show. Um, This whole thing that's going on between CBS and Viacom, uh, she wants them to merge, and CBS and its stockholders, or at least the board, does not, because they feel that their brand will be diluted by taking on Uh, National Amusements, which owns Paramount, and so on and so forth. Uh, Go back to the previous show if you want to know more about that. This suit that Sherry Redstone has uh, fired, it is fired, really. It's a a bullet in this war. It also challenges the legality of Moonves's severance package. Uh, He is rumored to retire soon, although there's been talk about it for a while. So who really knows? Uh, What's interesting is that NAI, that's National Amusements, uh, that Sherry Redstone represents, their complaint offers a detailed recounting of the proposed merger uh, for the last two years. It's been going on for a while. It's actually been going on since around 2006 or so, um, the suggestion of the merger between these two companies, which are actually owned by the same parent company. But again, don't know how this works. Uh, And of course, this complaint comes from the side of National, from Sherry Redstone's side. So, you know, take that into consideration when you consider uh, the things that they're claiming. The complaint asserts that Sherry Redstone had decided just before CBS sued her on the 14th of May to back off from pushing the merger because, oh, you know, I can see the board doesn't want this. 
Okay, sure. Is that true? Uh, that's what it says in the complaint. It also says that Moonves totally said that he would back a merger in 2017 and that he was ready for the next chapter, quote unquote, of his career, uh, which would probably be leaving a merged CBS Viacom for a very handsome severance package, handsome to the tune of 90 million bucks. Yeah. The suit also denies that Redstone would have actually replaced the CBS board members to force a merger vote, which she did threaten to do. I believe I reported on that last time. And it accuses Moonves of threatening the board that he would quit unless they did vote to dilute Redstone's stock share in the company, which would remove any kind of controlling power from her. For CBS's part, they maintain that Redstone's actions are detrimental to CBS's stockholders, and they have amended their own complaint recently to reinforce that. Uh, And there's some more details in the complaint about other jiggery-pokery at CBS that aren't really relevant, but they are gross and depressing, and you can read up on them if you choose through the link that I'll put in the show notes. Do you get the feeling, like I do, that this is like watching spoiled children throw their solid gold toys at each other (laughs) except the toys are star trek shows and films and they don't care you know they're mad but they'll just get more toys but we're like oh careful careful don't break the toys i mean redstone is trying to keep national amusements and and paramount competitive read in the money uh and moonves you know he has a diamond encrusted parachute waiting for him and that's if he doesn't become the ceo of the proposed merged company uh which he may oppose but he's going to benefit gratefully from either result so it's hard to root for any one party in this i mean i just want what's best for trek although if either les moonves or sherry redstone want to come on this program and make their case i will 100 percent cape for whatever they want me to back i'm just saying call me guys More on this as it develops. More news to feel conflicted and weird about. The man who accused George Takei of sexually assaulting him has withdrawn his initial claim. Former model Scott Brunton accused Takei last November of drugging and assaulting him in 1981. And Takei has continued to deny the the claim since last November. But last week in an article in The Observer, Brunton backed off of his claim, saying that the two did meet on the night in question, but that Takei had not assaulted him. He also admitted to fabricating a meeting over coffee he claimed that the two had years after the alleged incident. He still claims that they met in 1981, but that their interaction wasn't coerced. Takei, for his part, has maintained that he doesn't remember meeting Brunton and denies that he had assaulted him. His turn of events is good news for Takei, whose public image has been encompassed by this scandal since it was alleged last November. In a statement, Takei was gracious, saying, quote, I do not bear... I'm not going to do the voice because this is serious. (laughs) I do not bear Mr. Brunton any ill will and I wish him peace, end quote. He also thanks his fans for supporting him and his husband Brad for supporting him during the ordeal. Oh boy, what else? Uh, Nichelle Nichols is looking at a possible legal battle over her estate with questions of her health hanging in the balance. Her son Kyle Johnson filed papers with Los Angeles courts claiming the 85-year-old actress suffers from dementia and requires round-the-clock care. However, her manager, Gilbert Bell, denies the claims and accuses Johnson of trying to exploit Nichols. According to Bell, she's not ready for a nursing home and she still has a packed schedule, referring to her recent and upcoming con appearances and her recent film roles. There's no public statement that I could see from Nichols herself on this, but she does make a lot of appearances. And, I mean, she's usually attended by an aide or two and, you know, she's using uh, a wheelchair or some kind of support. But dementia? I don't know. And, you know, the really sucky thing about this is that when it comes to news, you sell a story, you know, on the headline these days. Or these days, I suppose, every day. Uh, And, you know, Star Trek star has dementia looks a lot, 
cleaner and, and more saucy to an editor than Star Trek star locked in battle with heirs or whatever. So right away, the story becomes Uhura has dementia. In fact, I've seen a hundred posts on Facebook and Twitter saying, oh, so sad, dementia's a killer, hashtag hailing frequencies, staying open or, or whatever. So let's just remember that all news is fake news without any sources, you know, even as we do send Nichelle our love and support, especially for having a turd burger of a son. Oh, oh, what? You want a source on that? Well, no one's going to go on record calling him a turd burger, but I present as evidence the last few lines of his Wikipedia page. Quote, he loved slot car racing during his off time back in the 60s, was very good at it, and raced on a team traveling throughout Southern California. He was well-liked. Kind, very polite, with impeccable manners, as a person, the type anyone would be proud to call a friend, end quote. If that isn't a self-edit to make him seem personable, I don't know what is. Anyway, we support you, Nichelle. Hope everything's going well, and we know how you really feel about being put in a home or losing your financial freedom. Sorry, neither. Okay, good news, good news. The Expanse has been picked up by Amazon and will receive at least a fourth season with possibly a longer commitment. Why should you care? I'll tell you why. You should be watching this show. In many ways, I consider it a spiritual successor to what Star Trek represents, especially in terms of how it details human social interaction in a sci-fi context. It is one of the best shows on TV, not just sci-fi TV shows, all shows. And you should absolutely check it out if you haven't yet. You can go stream it on Amazon so Bezos knows you're out there. It's great. And remember the can't. And in other cool, non-depressing news, Universal is rumored to be considering a Star Trek theme park in addition to their other Orlando parks. This comes on the heels of Disney's planned opening of their Star Wars Galaxy's Edge parks. In Orlando and California, the rumored Star Trek land would feature a sci-fi city, according to industry blog Disney and More, which would be like the old Star Trek experience at the Vegas Hilton back in the day, except outside and, you know, bigger. And this is great news. It's a great idea for a park. And who knows? I might yet get a chance to try some canard at a newly minted Quark's Mark II. I'll have to reach out to Dave Rossi and see what he knows about this. So keep a lobe out for updates about this story. But one thing's for sure, Worf isn't welcome. All he ever drinks is prune juice. The devil! Making rock music loud since 1973. The Adversary, Lucifer, Old Scratch, Old Nick, Shaitan, The Great Red Dragon, The Morning Star, Iblis, The Prince of the World, Mephistopheles, the Prince of the Air, Beelzebub, The God of This Age, A Roaring Lion, Mr. Applegate. This guy collects names like Pokemon cards. Take that, Mother of Dragons. The Devil is a popular character in fiction, and why not? He's the adversary. He's the first antagonist, and everyone loves a bad boy. And just like in the episode Devils Do, every culture seems to have a devil-like figure. None quite so drippy as Feklar, of course, the guardian of Greythor. <laughs> I love that the Klingons killed their gods, but they left that guy hanging around like, uh, you do it. Uh, no, no, I'm not touching that. You do it. On the subject of underworlds, many devilish figures came to be associated with what academics call thonic deities or underground gods. That's thonic spelled C-H-T-H-O-N-I-C, which makes no sense. What does make sense is that thonic deities were usually associated with things like wealth, the dead, and the harvest. Because gold comes from the earth, we put seeds in the earth and they come out as plants. How does that work? And we put dead people on the earth. And they don't come out. At least they're not supposed to. So Thonic deities have a mysterious and an important portfolio. So how did the guy underground with the pitchforks and the horns and the fire and hey, it hurts me end up being Satan, the bad guy? 
Well, for that, we have to rewind to 325 CE, around the time of the Council of Nicaea. The Catholic Church was an up-and-comer, a real blue chipper. And with the Edict of Milan, the writing was on the wall that this was going to be a thing for a while now, this Christianity thing. So how do we get all these barbarians on board? How do we, you know, convert them? Well, let's say they've got a god they worship. He's a fun guy. Maybe he's a little mysterious. Maybe he's got goat legs. He plays a flute. Maybe he's got a trident or a bident. But, you know, he's popular. Well, guess what, you primitive screwheads? He's the devil! And by the way, we've got a really cool god with a nice kid who makes lunch for everybody, so you should definitely check that out. And that, with extreme simplicity, is how we get the kind of devil you'll see in a Tenacious D video. But pretty much all cultures have a guy that's not exactly playing along. In Zoroastrianism, the destructive spirit is called Angra Mainyu. The ancient Egyptians had Apep, the serpent, who was a god of chaos. Also, serpents is a bad association, especially in the desert. When your brother's taking a dirt nap thanks to an aspen counter last year, you're going to be scared of that snake god. The Egyptians also had Set, brother of Osiris, who himself is a Jesus-y figure, Osiris, in Egyptian mythology. Now, Set started off as the god of foreigners, but after the Assyrians and the Persians stomped a few mud holes in Egypt, guess which god took on a more sinister aspect? Buddhism also features demons and antagonistic figures, chief among them Mara, a demon who tries to tempt the Buddha away from enlightenment. Demons, evil spirits, monsters, the Jotun of Norse myth, the Jinn of Middle Eastern paganism, all are found in all world cultures and all represent evil, greed, the harshness of the elements. But what makes Mr. Satan a real standout in Western culture? The obvious answer? Good press. Remember, in the Middle Ages, Satan as the Lord of Evil wasn't really a thing. I mean, he showed up mostly as a comical figure in medieval miracle plays to, quote, frolic, fall, and fart in the background, end quote, according to Scott Poole, author of Satan in America, The Devil We Know. Then came the Protestants. As the idea of a spiritual struggle for believers gained ground in Christianity, so did the need for a guy on the other end of that tug of war. And Satan with a capital S started to take shape as the fallen angel that we know and hate. Remember, Satan's not really in the Old Testament. The serpent in the garden is just a snake and was only later associated with the big S serpent. Paradise Lost by John Milton, Protestant PR man and poet extraordinaire, did a lot for Satan's mythology and established his status as an antagonist and a tragic hero? Yeah, Satan is the anti-hero of the epic poem. And it's a, it's a look at how a guy who started with everything could lose it all in one bad millennium. Sound familiar? I've seen a few movies with that exact plot. Uh, mostly gangster movies. Ooh, ooh, Satan meets Scarface. Say hello to my new friend! Another top billing for Mr. Mistopheles is the story of Dr. Faustus, which went from popular legend to chapbook that was flying off the shelves, to hit play by Marlowe, to Gunnod's smash opera, to crappy 80s comic book. Well, there's no accounting for taste. Back to the Protestants for a second. Puritans, a.k.a. super Protestants, really got on board with personifying Satan and making him a player on the spiritual landscape. And can you blame them? They themselves were entering the terrifying, uncharted landscape of the New World, where dark forests held demons and witches, and a lot of things that might have seemed a lot less frightening in densely populated, well-lit Europe. I mean, these witches aren't going to burn themselves. And speaking of witches, if you haven't seen The Witch from 2015, you have to. It is a terrifying, 
horror movie that is about this exact thing. You know, Puritans, maybe something's in the woods and it's not just superstition. And I won't say any more than that, but it's a really, really great like gothic film. Uh, as far as more modern enlightened tales on the big Esco, uh, Mark Twain was an atheist, but he sure loved to write a good Satan story. There might be something about the mercantile capitalist heir in America that lends itself to a good deal with the devil story. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Young Goodman Brown and Washington Irving's The Devil and Tom Walker sure capitalized on that. And since TV and movies debuted, the guy is everywhere from Rosemary's Baby to Angel Heart to Constantine to The Twilight Zone, Supernatural, Doctor Who and, you know, Lucifer on Fox. Actually skip that one and check out instead its source material that it takes a lot of questionable liberties with. But anyway, Lucifer by Mike Carey and various artists. The DC comic ran for 75 issues and in this podcaster's humble opinion, rivals the Sandman in terms of accomplishment in long form comic storytelling. It would be a sin to miss it. Speaking of works of antiquity and Satan figures, Khan Noonien Singh is probably Trek's most Satan-like character. He's a man gifted with incredible abilities. He has many followers, but for him, it's not enough. He's got that pride that won't let him be second to anyone, and it gets him exploded. And I'm not the first to point this out. In fact, the third book of Greg Cox's Con Trilogy is titled To Reign in Hell, an allusion to Paradise Lost. Not to mention, Paradise Lost, and probably every other book I've mentioned, seems to be on Con's shelf next to Moby Dick. Before I put the devil way down in the hole and we move on, I wanted to address something, specifically how all this relates to Trek. I mean, in Trek, there is no supernatural evil. There's no evil for evil's sake. Oh, sure, Shinzon's a real pill garlic, but he's hurt, he's lashing out. He's a child, he resents Picard. Nobody wants the Borg at a picnic, but they think they're improving the universe. Captain Lorca, well, maybe that's a different case. <laughs> the whole mere universe seems to be just straight evil for the hell of it. Most characters think that they're right, is my point, or at least are acting out of self-interest. And that includes a class of characters in mythology and in Trek that we haven't talked about yet, but are often associated with devils and demons. The tricksters. Tricksters in mythology are almost as ubiquitous as demons, but where demons are merely destructive forces, tricksters often find themselves as heroes of their own stories, or anti-heroes at the very least. They're rebels, boundary crossers, habitual line steppers, and they tend to challenge the social orders or societies they find themselves in, and often help to reestablish that society as something new and ostensibly better. Loki, Hermes, Leprechauns, the Mayan Hero Twins, Anansi, Enki, Coyote, Br'er Rabbit. Actually, rabbits and spiders are often cast as tricksters in African mythology. Did you see Moana? Maui is a real Polynesian trickster god. You're welcome. Like Maui, tricksters are often cultural heroes as well, who represent a people or help found an institution in their respective culture. They're mercurial, sometimes untrustworthy, and often a little unreliable, but we love them all the same. And the modern trickster is the con artist. From P.T. Barnum to Danny Ocean, con artists have been a huge presence in popular entertainment for the last 150 years. And why not? They're fun, and they're having fun. It's called a con game, after all. We like seeing people get the better of someone, especially when that person seems to deserve it. And that's where Ardra comes in. She, to me, is the crux of the devil trickster axis. She's literally a con woman playing an evil deity. And she's about as close as Trek gets to actually examining the presence of supernatural evil. Um, cat's paw and magics of Megas 2 aside, I don't know what was going on there. It's interesting to note that trickster characters tend to be shapeshifters, which Ardra has in spades, but they also tend to be male, 
and though her being female is probably no more than a concession to the romantic attraction that she feels for Picard in the story, it's nice to see a female character with the cunning and industriousness usually reserved for male characters. Trek itself has a storied tradition of trickster-grifter types, and I'm not just talking about the outrageous O'Connor. From Ur-Conman Harry Mudd, to Vosh, to Trelane, even Garth of Izar, and of course the character that embodies God, the Devil, and the trickster all in one is the incorrigible Q. He's powerful, capricious, and in a roundabout way pushes humanity, represented by the crew of the Enterprise, to elevate themselves to a new paradigm of interacting with the universe. I'm sure this isn't an accident, but Q always reminded me of another trickster from popular culture. DC Comics' Mr. Mixes Pitalik. You know, they both show up, they use their limitless power to harass a morally upright character, and they're eventually defeated or dismissed once that character has learned an important lesson or come to some kind of self-realization. You see, devils make us better heroes. Just, uh, don't sign anything. And if you find yourself in a fiddling competition, you better bring it. Mr. Data, I look forward to your next concert. Well, from tricksters to scoundrels, I've got a no-spoiler review of the new Star Wars film, Solo, A Star Wars Story. Right off the bat, I want to say that I went into this movie with absolutely zero expectations. So your mileage, uh, as far as your expectations go, may vary. Um, Here's the setup. I didn't like the last two. Uh, I thought that Rogue One was, you know, a reference fest, um, that we know how the story ends, so I don't really know why I care. Uh, And I thought that The Last Jedi left me kind of cold. It had really great parts and it had really questionable parts. Um, And also, I'm not sure I'm on board with their philosophy of uh, forget everything you know. I like what I know. I don't know if I want to forget it. Um, But I don't know. I guess I'll be there for number nine to see where it goes. Um, You know, I'm also a Star Trek guy. Uh, I was worried about this film when I heard that, you know, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller were fired and Ron Howard was brought on. I'm not really a Ron uh, Howard fan, uh, which is a problem. So it all added up to why am I going to see this? Uh, But I decided to give it a chance. Um, I don't usually watch a lot of trailers or commercials, but they looked kind of fun. And I thought maybe I can just ride this one out. Uh, and and do my own Castle Run. And it turns out, I can. This is an incredibly fun movie. Uh, There is a formula here that works. Um, How is it different than Rogue One in terms of being a story we know the end to? You know, I can't fight that a whole lot except to say that it's just seeing a character in an earlier time. And I don't know how this heist is going to turn out. Like, it was a nice little look at this character's life uh, in a part that we haven't seen before. I mean, it it could have easily have been set uh, in between, say, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Like, it's about a young Han, and the movie does kind of track his development into the Han that we know. But it's just sort of like a slice from his life. And yes, there are elements there, uh, things like Han meeting Chewie, the card game where he wins the Falcon, how he gets his blaster... But unlike Rogue One, the movie doesn't grind to a halt to introduce these things. They're there, um, they're very briefly touched on, and they're not beaten into you, which I think is the best way to do it. In fact, some of them were so subtle, I kind of, I don't want to say that I was disappointed, but I was almost like, is that, is that all, I've, I've seen Rogue One, is that all you want to do? I figured that you'd want to just bring everything to a halt and tell us exactly how uh, he gets his name or he gets the scar on his chin or, or whatever. And instead, the movie had a really light touch, which I felt was great. Uh, and I don't know if that was Lord Miller's contribution or if that was always the goal for the movie. But like light and fun, uh, I think, really defines this. Um, 
You know, there was rumors initially that the star wasn't very good, Alden Ehrenreich. I think he's fine. I think he's great. Nobody should have to do what he had to do, which is step into the shoes of Harrison Ford, uh, for God's sake. Uh, and to be fair, he's not hes not like Harrison Ford really at all. I mean, he's game. He's fun. He's got some swagger. Uh, but he's great. He's a fun sort of naive hero that we just you want to follow. He's he's charming. I can see how that guy would get to be Harrison Ford uh, eventually. Um, not the old one, uh, you know, the one from Star Wars. Um, and the casting all around was great. Uh, Donald Glover is great in this. Uh, Woody Harrelson is great. Woody Harrelson is that guy that it's like, oh, he's a good actor. Like, I, I didn't know that. Uh, he's been sort of subtly being a good actor for a long time. Um, and Paul Bettany was like the standout for me. Like he was really, really great uh, as the crime boss, Dryden Voss, who's this guy who is just evil, horrible, you know, just does not care. But yet he has this real professional kind of affable like, OK, come on in. Oh, you fail. OK, well, we're going to kill you now. And you, oh, you want to say something? OK, hold on. Put the guns down for a sec. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. Like he's just he's just doing business. He's just getting things done. And maybe getting things done means shooting you in the face. Uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge is the voice and the motion capture, I believe, for the droid L3 who, in my opinion, is also a great part of this. Uh, one of the things I've, I've always made fun of Star Wars for is the fact that they have this entire class of people, droids, which are basically a servant, a slave class in this world. And they finally address this uh, because L3 uh, is very concerned with robot rights. And she's she's ready to blow the lid off this thing uh, and start a rebellion of her own. And that's kind of fun. Um, yeah, I just think that it's a really fun space heist film that keeps getting interrupted by Star Wars noises. <laughs> you know, like somebody has a replica blaster they keep shooting off every once in a while. And that's fine. Uh, you know, I don't think it drags the movie down um, too much. Uh, it's a little slow to get started. Um, no spoilers, but the opening, you know, is earlier, earlier in Han's life. And it's a little sort of anecdote that shows us how he kind of gets rolling. And I felt like we didn't need it. I felt like we could have just, bam, started and we're in it. And he's, you know, out there. Uh, trying to be a Han Solo. Um, but it doesn't take too long. It's over pretty fast. There's kind of a neat car chase. Uh, but, you know, this movie, it for me, is like the Millennium Falcon itself. You know, it's a little slow to get going. You're not sure. But by the time it's up, it soars. So people are making a big deal about it only making uh, about $110 million when it was projected to make over 150. And I, I wouldn't worry about that. I mean, look at Star Trek it'll succeed, it'll fail. People will like it, people won't. And it just keeps plugging. And I think that Star Wars, if they're going to move forward with this, you know, one a year type thing, I think they have to get used to having a movie that isn't a giant blockbuster. You can still have one that's that's great. You know, you Disney put out movies for years and they did the same thing. Um, wow, where am I going with this? But uh, I think uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which... Yeah, okay, Jason Alexander. There's some not good parts, but I feel like it's one of the most, like mature, one of the best Disney uh, animated films. I think it was the first one to not make $100 million in its initial run. And after that, what happened? Hercules. Like, they were like, well, we're never doing that again. I hope Disney doesn't get the we'll never do that again lesson from this. I hope that they commit to making fun movies that, you know, leave the huge portent fate of the galaxy to the episodes and just have fun with these. Do this Boba Fett movie and have it be another just sort of, you know, skipping adventure through the uh, the seedy underbelly, you know, the wretched hives of scum and villainy. 
Uh, if they do, I'll be there for it. If you want to hear more talk about Solo, an entire spoiler review, actually, you can check out our sister show on this network, Just Enough Trope, the podcast, where I and my co-host, Mikan Hana, do a whole review and sort of breakdown of the Solo movie. But yeah, for me on this show, I say go see it. It's fun and a little scruffy, just like our guy Han. Well, if Solo, a Star Wars story, the story of Solo in the Wars of the Stars isn't enough to get your hyperdrive going, you can always turn to many of the amazing novels set in the Star Wars extended universe. Legends or not, they can never take these fantastic books from us. Books like The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, The Han Solo Trilogy by A.C. Crispin, and the Lando Calrissian Trilogy, including Lando Calrissian and the Mind Harp of Sheru. Lando Calrissian and the Flame Wind of Oceon, and Lando Calrissian and the Star Cave of Thonbaka, mentioned, mentioned, now canon, in the film Solo, A Star Wars Story. You have to read these books. They're by author L. Neil Smith. I love the uh, Brian Daly books and the Crispin books as well, but the Lando, the Lando books are awesome. They are they were, I think, written in the 80s, but they are like this kind of throwback, like 70s sort of trippy sci-fi thing. They barely fit into Star Wars, but a lot of the early books were like that before, you know, Star Wars was a thing and every other book by Michael Stackpole, not Hayton, but still uh, was coming out. People just write a Star or just a, a sci-fi novel and then stick Star Wars names in there. And that's what the Lando books are. And they're really, really great. And they're really funny, too. Uh, and on the subject of tricksters, don't forget that last week's guest, John Jackson Miller, has a trilogy of novels that deal with tricksters in space, as well as Admiral Riker and the Klingon Empire and devilish figures. It's called the Prey Trilogy, and all three books are available for a buck ninety-nine a piece on Amazon, but only for a few more days. So you got to get them now. And remember Satan in America, the devil we know from before? That's available on Amazon as well. As well as Paradise Lost, uh, there is a biblically annotated version available on Amazon, so you can see where all the references in Paradise Lost are coming from in the Bible. No matter what you believe, Paradise Lost is a sweeping, epic tale, and John Milton is a chill dude, so I recommend that highly, uh, as well as Mike Carey's Lucifer from DC Comics. Now, I've got links to all of these books in the show notes, where you can click right through to Amazon and liberate those novels for the rebellion. You can also go to enterprisingindividuals.com and click through our banner to reach Amazon. Every time you click through Enterprising Individuals and make a purchase on Amazon, a little bit of that purchase goes to us here at the show at no extra cost to you and helps keep Coaxium in our hyperdrive. So click on our links or through the banner, bookmark it even, and shop away. May the commerce be with you. And maybe you're saying, what is this? I've got all these books. I go out every weekend with L. Neil Smith and we yell at the parasites. Yeah, don't. Don't look into his politics. You don't want to go there. Uh, I'm, I'm more powerful with Star Wars merchandise than you can possibly imagine. To which I would say, I don't think there's libertarians in the Star Wars universe. I mean, I don't even want to pull that thread. But I'd also say, if you hate parasites, Minox or otherwise, why not put your money where your mouth sucker is and support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly donation, and you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content, like our live shows, including our upcoming live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018 in July, and my DS9 rewatch recaps, plus our new episode commentaries debuting soon, show merchandise, and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. For as little as $1 a month, you can be a member of the crew. And as always, anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. 
Our top comment on social media this week is part of a larger conversation, which may or may not be something like a slow-motion Zeppelin crash. Former guest of the show and author Alan Gratz, at Alan Gratz on Twitter and at alangratz.com on the internet, tweeted at the show, quote, Do you have the whole season booked? I've got an itch to talk about Threshold, or, you know, a good episode, end quote. <laughs> Little do you know, Alan, you're already on the schedule to talk about Threshold. You just haven't agreed to it yet. It's like a nature documentary where the bug is minding his own business. He's just bumbling around the edge of the Phoenix flytrap, and then he hits one of those little hairs, and bam, no escape. This, of course, is all part of the ongoing saga, beginning with me hinting at covering the worst episode of Trek ever. Uh, then I bought a mutated Tom Paris figure from eBay for some reason. Oh, <laughs> by the way, the mutated Tom Paris figure is heavily featured in the new episode of The Toys That Made Us on Netflix, as is the AMT Galileo shuttlecraft model that Pete the Retailer and I talked about a few shows ago, as are John and Mary Jo Tenuto, former guests on the show. They're there to talk about the rough road that Trek toys faced until the Playmates years, and of course how the McFarlane years are going now, which is a whole other thing, and hey, maybe I'll do a show on that someday. Anyway, it's fascinating. John and Mary Jo are great in it, so check it out now on Netflix and stay tuned for Threshold with Alan Gratz. Maybe? Definitely. Probably. Thanks for your comment, Alan. You win full-ride scholarships for your little mutated amphibian alien babies to Starfleet Academy. After all, they're legacies. Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or find us at at EISTpod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at EISTpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts, huh? And make sure you're subscribed to the show. It's an apple. You take a bite. Satan's still going, still going. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. The first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth. But what if that truth isn't yours to tell? What if the truth itself has been replaced with a comfortable lie? Author Dave Gallanter returns to the show next week to talk about an episode of Star Trek Voyager that has chilling parallels to the fates of marginalized peoples in our own world, in both our past and our present. It's Remember, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.